This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by comfort food, Franklin. Why comfort food? Why are we having comfort food here at the at the office today? Well, there's a study out this week that says that Democrats are 50% more likely than Republicans to say they're eating their feelings. Do you think that's because Democrats are more in touch with their feelings? They're very touchy-feely people. They they are. They are. You would think that after a two-year period of being in touch with your feelings and eating your feelings that that we could have an obesity epidemic within the the left side of the aisle. So basically the the Democrats eat their stress and they do a better job of, uh, or a worse job of containing their stress than Republicans do. And so this poll is suggesting that... uh, Democrats are eating their feelings and even drinking more as well. Uh, stress relief for the yeah, political climate. It looks like um, on the drinking front, there is a two-to-one ratio, um, Democrat to GOP, in, in terms of their drinking more. But it's, that kind of seems like a baseline to me. Well, I, it probably makes sense. I mean, the Republican base is kind of older, whiter, a little more fuddy-duddy, you know, teetotalers, Christian right. What are you seeing up there in the... Uh, in the bubble, Renzo, are you seeing a lot of eating amongst the uh, the D lobbying court? A lot of drinking. What's what's the word? Well, I mean, there's obviously a lot of stress on, on both sides. I think uh, I'm surprised that the ratios are so different, but you know, rest assured, everybody here is still eating and drinking, and uh, you know that's good for our audience, right? I don't well, think I don't think what whatever political parties in charge really upsets the D.C. drinking and eating lobbying corps. I think so they're pretty. They're like recession proof. They all just fire through. So, Joe Renzo, what is your comfort food of choice when you're when you're down in the dumps and you're stressed out? You've had to put in more than a fifteen or eighteen hour week. How do you <laughs> how do you how do you find comfort? What, what food do you find comfort? It is very stressful dealing with you two on a regular basis, but uh, I dive into uh, a nice chunky bowl of uh, warm tomato soup and a little grilled cheese sandwich on the side. That's my go-to, man. That's uh, that's actually pretty. I like that. Good Taking it you. old school. That's 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 very old school and you know kind of healthy there. Mine's mine's terrible. My comfort food is just a a big, greasy, meaty pizza. Yeah, I'd, I would say burger. Burger. That's where I get right the burger and fries, which you know I really don't get that often. To be honest, that is exactly where I go immediately. Let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We need a political revolution, and we will make America great again. From the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the election is just four days away, and we'll take another look at what's happening in the states, this week focusing on ballot initiatives and attorneys general. Google employees staged a giant walkout protesting the company's perceived lack of action on sexual harassment charges against some senior executives. Is this a new high watermark in the evolution of employee activism? And McDonald's is tinkering with their employee benefits, this time in the career development space. Did the clown get it right this time? We'll talk about those stories and then wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my aligned partners, Franklin Coley, Carson Chandler, and as always, Joe Rinzel up in the D.C. bubble. So we are four days out from Election Day, midterms 2018. I got to tell you, I'm exhausted, Franklin. I'm sick of this. Bouncing in my seat. I'm ready to go. You love this stuff. You you love it. It's go time. So so last week on the on the podcast, we went over key governors' races that we were watching, as well as state legislative races we were watching. And this week, we're going to talk about the attorneys general and 
uh, the ballot initiatives we're keeping a particular eye on. But Franklin, let's just go back and level set where we left off last week about the political climate. Let's let's just set the table one more time before we go into the AGs. The bottom line is this. Republicans are basically at a high water mark. They have, I don't want to say total control, but they dominate at the state level. 67 of 99 state legislative chambers are controlled by Republicans. Um, something like, I think, 26 states where they control both the upper and the lower legislative bodies and the governor's mansion. So the bottom line is they're going to lose seats. Even in a neutral election cycle, they would lose seats. If there is a quote-unquote blue wave, they could lose a heck of a lot of seats. So that's where things stand today. Okay, so let's let's pivot to the attorneys general. And before we start, tell, tell our listeners why the particular importance of this office. Why do we pay so much attention to attorneys general? What we've seen recently, uh, particularly as it relates to entry-level employers, restaurant, retail, et cetera, is attorneys general have been really leading the charge on a lot of different issues. And this is in part due to state legislative bodies passing aggressive wage theft legislation in the past couple years that has empowered these attorneys generals to go after um, corporate brands. And we've seen this in a number of states around the country a number of which are up on election day. And, and one other reason I think it's important for the audience to understand also is how incented uh, attorneys, attorneys general are in this space. Uh, because, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, almost all the attorney general's offices across the country got their funding from regular appropriations from the state legislature. Over time, more and more of their funding is coming from what? Franklin settlements. Yep. So they are incented financially to go after settlements, to go after companies and entities and organizations. And you know, again, attorney generals don't like to sue; they like to settle. So, so there's a number of reasons why this job is so important. I would also add on that they are politically incented to go after companies as well. I mean, AG oftentimes is a very sleepy office, but the way that AGs can be regularly in the headlines and and you know, kind of build a, a statewide or even national political ID is to really go after corporate brands. And, and that is, you know, we saw Elliot Spitzer do that. Kamala Harris is now yeah. in the U.S. Senate from California. Eric Schneiderman, the list goes on. And one other little factoid, AG sometimes is jokingly referred to as aspiring governor. So important job. So let's go to the, the states themselves, Franklin. What, what AG's races are you particularly watching? So there's a couple that stand out from the pack as important and worth watching. Probably, you know, I I think I'd put one of the ones at top of the pile is the Minnesota race. Now, that is Keith Ellison, who is expected to walk away with that seat, but has had some hiccups late here. There's been uh, accusations of domestic abuse. And so he's actually down in the polls. Um, it's unclear if he's going to pull that out or not, but Keith Ellison ran to the left of Tom Perez, who was... Uh, As they ran for the head of the Democratic National Committee. Correct. Um, and ran to the left of Tom Perez, who was Obama's labor secretary. So, I mean, you know, and, and he's been a member of Congress and has a, a, you know, a firm record on a number of issues. He is going to be headhunting. There's no doubt about it. As we tape this podcast, he's about four or five points down pretty yeah. consistently in the polls. And he's looking looking to hire office. So that, that's the one that I'm watching the most closely. Second up, and this is pretty much a done deal, 
and there's two others I'd put in the done deal category. I'm looking at New York. We have Tish James, who is going to... Now, her real name is Letitia, but you guys are so close now. You just She calls you Frank, and you call her Tish? We go back a, a long way. Okay. So Brooklyn uh, City Council person uh, advanced to be the New York City public advocate. Strong backing from labor unions throughout her political career is uh, New York City public advocate. She basically held joint press conferences with Fight for 15 against McDonald's. So, you know, this is... Uh, this is someone that we can expect is going to continue that posture in the attorney's general office, picking up right where Eric Schneiderman left off. So that is uh, definitely on the watch list. I would also put these are these are easy re-election states, Massachusetts and California, also AG offices that have been very aggressive in going after corporate brands. There is you know there's wage theft statute in these states that allows for them to to do a lot. So so one phenomenon that I've I've noticed uh, watching with the AGs is there's some really big states where operators have lots of outlets, lots of lots of restaurants, Florida, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Colorado, and these attorney general races are wide open. Yep. And let me let me separate those into two groups. Let me put let me talk about Colorado and Michigan first. These are both states that could go completely blue, and Michigan in particular could go from all red to all blue, and essentially you could have a blue attorney general. You could expect that one of the first items they would pick up would be wage theft legislation in a Colorado or a blue Michigan, and that would give the attorney general much more room to run and kind of going after corporate brands. Florida, some people talk about it could go all blue. That seems like a very big long shot, but yet again, important seat. Um, and that's basically a toss up. Ohio, Wisconsin, these down ballot races like attorney general, a lot of the time polling is not good on them. It's hard to tell which way they're going to go. And I think most of these, if not all, are in play right now. That's the key. There's never, there's never really good polling on this particular job and it has a tremendous top of the ticket can affect can affect by an incredible amount who is elected at attorney to attorney general and the coattails pull them up and almost you know top of the ticket polling on a lot of this stuff is all over the board a lot of these states you have split results like florida for instance you know polls show that the republican may go with the u.s senate seat which is held by a democrat and it looks like democrat may win the governor's mansion so who knows what that means down ticket Joe Renzo, what's your take? I just uh, adding to kind of the litany of issue sets that you, that you guys talked about in terms of the AGs and where they enforce and where they do settlements. You know, something our listeners should really keep a focus on is data privacy. I think that's an emerging issue. You know, it comes from credit card processing fraud, and you know, there's been settlements with retailers all over the place, but now it's expanding into really any personal information. Big law passed in California, going to be enforced by the Attorney General. You know, if you're collecting, you know, any kind of consumer information, whether it's through your website or, you know, in the four walls of your store, you know, this this could be a potential liability moving forward and something folks got to watch and make sure they got their I's dotted and T's crossed in terms of their policy. Well said, Joe. And, you know, and Franklin talked about wage theft, it's gender equity, it's it's harassment, it's non-disclosures, non-poaching agreements. I mean, this is, there's a lot of stuff under the purview of attorney generals that operators need to be keenly, keenly aware of, and these races are important. So, Joe Renzo, let's stay with you. Let's flip over to the ballots. You're the you're the ballot maestro of Align Public Strategies. What are you, what are you watching at the ballot? 
Ballot Maestro. I gotta I gotta get that on the business card. That that sounds pretty good. From a minimum wage perspective, I think we'd all agree we we'd expected to see a bit more. You know, you had some grand bargains signed in in maybe larger market states like uh, Michigan and Massachusetts, where you know the legislature acted to take uh, paid leave and, and minimum wage off the ballot in those states. Um, so we're left with Arkansas and Missouri from a statewide perspective. Relatively modest uh, wage increases. We're talking about $11 an hour in Arkansas and $12 an hour in Missouri, although it's all market dependent. And then at the local level, we're looking at uh, Anaheim, California has a wage ballot initiative, but that's linked to businesses that receive city subsidies. This is coming from the long, uh, long drawn out fight with Disney in terms of building a new hotel there. Uh, Flagstaff, Arizona, kind of a reverse they're looking to actually decrease the minimum wage and keep it in, uh, put it back in line with state law. Uh, so that's something supported by the local chamber there. And in Oakland, California, we got uh, some increases to the minimum wage, but specific to hotel employees. Uh, and this is up to $15 an hour. A few other ones we're watching, um, you know, on the tax front, you've got a couple, uh, you know, pro-business ones, like in Arizona, you got a local preemption on new taxes. Uh, Oregon, you also got uh, preempting localities from enacting taxes on groceries, although that's a little different uh, and has a lot to do with Portland, which I'll get to in a minute. And then two, uh, one in Florida and Oregon, where uh, they're talking about requiring a supermajority vote in each chamber to enact new taxes. So we've seen that play out in California. Uh, it seems good on paper in terms of keeping that tax burden low and having to go to the people every time you want to increase it. Uh, but the challenge comes when you're trying to balance budgets and you know get some things done in the legislature. It, it tends to slow some things down. So it's a little bit of a double-edged sword depending on how you look at it. So in Portland, Oregon, you've got um, a ballot initiative requiring retailers with a total annual revenue of over $1 billion and uh, city revenue over $500,000 to pay a 1% surcharge on gross receipts to fund clean energy projects and clean job training. So that's a little unique in Portland. San Francisco, this is getting a lot of press. You got a lot of businesses on both sides of the aisle on this one. The mayor's in a bit of a bind. Um, this is a ballot initiative that would, again, put a gross receipts tax on businesses with over 50 million in annual gross receipts. It's gonna apply those resources to fund housing and homeless services. This is a big issue in San Francisco and, and really uh, problematic from a citywide perspective. They're expected to raise $300 million to help fight homelessness. And again, you got businesses on both sides of that. It's uh, unclear how that's polling uh, and it's unclear how that'll shake out. And then finally, uh, you got uh, statewide in, in Oregon and Washington. And I know Franklin's super excited about this stuff. Uh, we're talking about preempting localities from enacting taxes on groceries. So this is really the soda tax issue uh, in Seattle and Portland. You both got folks um, trying to implement these these taxes on groceries. So they're looking to preempt that at the state level. The question is really, are you for or against affordable groceries? That's really what it comes down to. It's good. And I know the last one here, I just got to throw this in here because I know you guys will love this one. In California, we're talking about uh, a, a, a ballot initiative that bans the sale of meat from animals confined in spaces below a specific size. So that's your chickens uh, and eggs. And it gets a little dicey uh, when we look at it from our operator's perspective. But this also has implications for how you regulate businesses across border in one state. We'll see how that plays out. So guys, let's make a couple predictions. Give me, give me maybe each of us, give me two Two bold predictions. Bold predictions. That just something kind of outside the norm that you're 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 looking for. Little, little not necessarily have to be a hail mary, but 
Give me a bold, give me a couple bold predictions that probably people aren't thinking about. Franklin, you go first. I will admit that I'm I'm stealing one that you you mentioned earlier this week. But my first bold prediction is Michigan goes all blue, and the reason why. You know, it's, it's bold to flip a whole state from red to blue, but it's also important because that is uh, that's Trump country, baby. I mean, that is that is kind of the old Union Rust Belt state where that, that was the Trump win right there. So to have that switch and go blue, I think is significant, not only for state level action in, in you know, the next two years, but I think more long-term, it's significant looking towards 2020. All right, so that's your first one. Joe Renzo, what's your first bold prediction? My first bold one is in honor of my mother. She's a longtime listener of, of the pod, you know, one of our avid fans. I'm going with the Senate uh, goes blue. The U.S. Senate going blue. That's my bold prediction. That is a, a boy who loves his mommy. That's a that's a bold prediction. Renzo right is a mama's boy. I've always thought that. All right, so coming back to me, I think my, my prediction – is that the Democrats do a clean sweep in the desert states, Nevada, Colorado, Arizona, Arizona is a steep and New climb. Mexico. I know that's why these are bold predictions. So I'm the Dems go desert, de- desert goes Democrat. So there's, there's my, all right, let's go backwards. Renzo, what's your next prediction? Um, I'm going with a two and one here. They both got to happen at the same time. I'm going with a Dem governor in Kansas and Georgia. I think I got a chance there, and I think you guys should give me better odds because I'm going for a twofer. I like I like that. I you know Kobach and, and Kemp are basically the the same candidates. So and they're both very toxic in in a lot of ways. If Kansas goes blue, then the whole nation has flipped upside. I think down. Kansas has got a better chance of going blue than Georgia. I'd agree with that. Yeah, I I, I don't think it's going to happen in Georgia, but I like it as a bold prediction. It could happen. That's, that's a good one, Renzo. Good job. Hey, thanks, buddy. Franklin, what is your second prediction? So my uh, second prediction would be basically, I don't think it's going to happen, by the way, but I'm going to throw it out there. We're going to have a blue wave in you know, half the battleground states, and we have essentially half the battleground states up. So you look at we're going to talk about Michigan. Let's talk about Wisconsin. Let's talk about Ohio. Let's talk about Florida. You can kind of sneak a, a Georgia in and then your desert states. I mean, you're talking about you could potentially have a majority of the battleground states move from red red to blue ahead of redistricting. So I'm, I'm looking at, yet again, I don't think this is going to happen. I, I think there's too many local dynamics in play. But you could have the blues run the table in a majority of battleground states, which would be dramatically change the political landscape for a decade. And my second and last prediction, Joe, and this will be near and dear to your heart as Washington Redskins fans, old number nine, Sonny Jurgensen, I predict nine chambers will flip. The Dems will have a plus nine chamber flip. Plus nine. Plus nine. They'll pick up nine chambers. It's not very bold, I don't think. I think it's – sure it is. Joe Renzo, what's your a little bolder than uh, Franklin's hedging of all his bets, his bold bet that he's going to take, but he's not sure it's going to happen. You know, it's a little not sure it could happen, but maybe it might happen, but somehow could happen. And then he tells me I I put an actual number on it, and he tells me I'm not bold. This is a day in the life of Align Public Strategies. All right, so we'll have uh, a full analysis of the election. It will be the bulk of the pod next week, and we'll see whose predictions came true. And maybe there's a little um, little, little food pro. wager, little wager. 
uh, okay. on the issue. So okay. we'll have to we'll have to see what happens. Never a dull moment at the ballot. So we'll be reporting on those next next week. So stay tuned. So this week, about seventeen thousand Google employees worldwide. Uh, in mass, walked off the job uh, to protest th- their company's handling of some sexual abuse, sexual harassment allegations against some senior executives. And what they view as a broken culture. Broken culture. Um, this is a, a, a new high watermark for employee. I mean, there's all kinds of connotations here, but a high watermark for employee disgruntlement, for employee empowerment, for employer relations, and all those things in terms of the normal way that companies interact, the traditional way that companies interact with their employees. Franklin, what, what, what is your take on all this? We're somewhat of a broken record now, I think, on this, on this topic. But, you know, when you, you have something in the news like this, you can't not talk about it. You know, we've been having this conversation around this issue set for a year and a half now. And we've seen a lot of brands get, get drugged into the public domain. And there's no signs of that ending. You know, there's some issues that, and I'm not trying to minimize issues and companies' responses, and every, but there's some issues that bubble up. Companies look to address it. They roll out a new policy. They, you know, they put their best foot forward in terms of their public affairs, and they kind of move on. This is clearly an issue where that, that is not going to work. That there's going to have to be some deep examination that is done, um, some introspection to actually get at the heart of, the core of, these issues, address them uh, in a meaningful way. Otherwise, any company is going to be vulnerable to this this type of action. Yet again, is at least a year and a half we've been having a very public conversation about this. I don't see any sign of that slowing down or stopping. Potentially, maybe it's speeding up. We have, as we've said about it before, this is the year of the woman. We're going to have a record number of women going into elected office, and they're not all running on this issue or any other one particular issue, but we know from public polling that this issue is higher in the priority list, generally speaking, of women that are going to be regulators and policymakers um, in higher numbers after Election Day. This is a conversation that if you haven't gotten ahead of, you know, you need to get ahead of. And if you think you gotten ahead of, maybe you need to stop and make sure that you actually really have gotten ahead of it. So so Franklin's talking about the sexual harassment issue in itself per se. Joe Renzo, what is your what is your angle? Yeah, just coming at it from a bit of a wider lens, you know, not taking away from the sexual harassment issue. I think that's obviously really important and central to a lot of things that are going on, a lot of different narratives and discussions. What's interesting to me is just the kind of additive nature of this issue to the what we've seen in terms of folks are calling it tech clash. Um, you know, a couple years ago, the innovation halo, the heavy hitters, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Twitters, these were companies and entities that you wanted on your side in advocacy efforts, whether you're talking about health insurance for companies or, you know, data privacy or other issues. Now, you know, with the, you know, interference on elections, the social media aspects, um, you know, Google in terms of their relationship with some international countries, you know, all of those things are coming into play. And, and this certainly doesn't help that and probably adds to that negative connotation of that industry. And so it's going to be interesting to watch over the next legislative cycle how uh, much oxygen is taken out of the room on other issue priorities that those en- entities might be working on. Couldn't agree more. I, you know, I, I want to take it in a little bit different direction. I agree with you on the tech lash piece, but I think, you know, we, the restaurant industry in particular has this time-tested knee-jerk reaction that's always somebody else's problem. Oh, it's a tech problem. Oh, it's Walmart's problem, whatever it is. 
Um, it's, an, it's a large employer problem. What, what I see when I see this is the ability for large numbers of employees to rally quickly and force significant corporate behavior and hold hold corporate leadership accountable in the modern workforce. And you know they didn't need to form uh, a bargaining unit of the AFL-CIO to get this done. They didn't have to join a, a union to, to even though SEIU is pushing fight for 15, they didn't have to join a union to push this agenda. And it's, and it's the, the modern communication is allowing modern workforces to organize quickly in a variety of different ways. And I think corporate leadership has to understand that, you know, they've been trained, you know, they've been trained to think about you know, dealing with the consumer, the consuming public, their customers. They've been trained to deal with policymakers and what an impact Washington's going to have on their business model. They're, they're less prepared for this space. Employee relations, 20, you know, even 10 years ago, means a hell of a lot different than it does today. And I think the lesson for all of the companies that in our industry is that your employees can organize quickly, easily, and effectively overnight and force behavior. It's a very different bug. So to me, that's the lesson learned out of, out of this space. It is not a tech issue. It's a large employer and employee issue. And they take cues from one another, right? Like this is this is almost self-reinforcing that when one group of you know younger people that then mobilize in different ways see whether it's within their own workplace or other workplaces, they see this type of collective action, then that is that is going to kind of reinforce that that is nobody's getting fired, right? And they got a free day off, right? And and yes, they engage some meaningful speech in their regarding their workplace and, and potentially political speech, but they also there was no negative repercussion. That is going to be reinforcing, and that is something other employers want to watch out for. That's obviously an important trend line. And 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 two quick asides, you know, I saw that that rally and all those people and three thousand people in New York Central Park. If I'm the a traditional labor union, I'm sitting back and going, "Good God, what do they need me for? I'm or, I'm obsolete." Yeah, you know? either that or I'm grabbing my sign up cards and heading out to that that well, park. But yeah, yeah, I think just the opposite. They, they don't they don't need you. They can they can force activity without paying you fifteen percent union dues and so forth. The other thing that was kind of funny, I don't know if you guys caught this, but during some of the footage, there's a big rally outside the, the gates of Google and the way the television cameras were focused, you could see the gym on the second floor and these executives running was on Renzo the treadmill. Was Renzo in like a sleep pod in there? I guess so. But some guys running on the treadmill overlooking this rally, trying to trying to sneak in a uh, trying to sneak in a workout. Nobody, that's impressive. Yeah, that was pretty funny. That's but. that is that's the worst way to get get nailed by your boss for you know, slinking out and CNN. So, so I have a hidden camera in Rinzel's briefcase for all the national guys <laughs> in the middle of the day. Well done. So. That's business development, guys. What are you talking about? Good for you. Well done. So before we get on to the legislative scorecard, Franklin, something kind of interesting in the news this week regarding McDonald's and um, against the backdrop of you know, employers trying to compete with for employees by offering more perks and more benefits. Another week, another employer runs out new rolls out a new benefit. This one I I don't quite understand. Um, explain to me what McDonald's is doing. Well, the long and short of it is is um, they essentially are putting career counselors or you know navigators, um, making them available to employees, and they are saying that this is building off of already existing education programs and opportunities they provide their employees. If an employee wants to, you know, go to school and get tuition reimbursed or get assistance with that tuition, then McDonald's will um, help them with that. And this career counselor advisor is intended to help them uh, 
kind of navigate that path, if we, if you will. I, I think the name of the the campaign was uh, "Where You Want to Be." Where you want to be, and obviously it's it's I want to be on a beach. Maybe they can help you with that. Mm. Um, you know, I think it's it's just an interesting time for HR practitioners where everyone is looking for how to get a leg up in this incredibly tight and competitive labor market. And I think some, you know, benefits like this are going to work in some companies for some employees and, you know, it's not going to work in others, right? I think Starbucks has gone the furthest to try to figure out exactly what and who their employees are and what benefits they like and what makes sense for them and and kind of come up with this wraparound services for them. I think others are trying. I think this is an effort by McDonald's to, to head down that path too. Don't know if it's going to work out or not, but uh, you know, look, they're they're out there throwing things against the wall. So. I think for for a company as big and and as McDonald's, if they're going to get make announcements in the space, they got to be a little bigger and bolder than that. I mean, I would think that their employee, their average employee base, would rather just say, "Hey, can you just give me a bump in my wages," as opposed to sitting me down for an hour with somebody that can help me. You know. Well, that is what the critics uh, were were quick to say. Um, about this this new program, they also noted that it was limited to only some employees, not to all employees. Um, but look, I like it. Yeah, I think this is good. I think this is great. This maybe this is something that four people use, and maybe the next benefit they roll out, you know, forty five percent of their employee base uses. But you don't know until you get out there and 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 try different things. Well, we'll we'll, we'll see what happens. It's time for the legislative scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on. What happened this week legislatively and regulatorily? And as always, we start with wages in the D.C. bubble. Joe Renzel. Yeah, we got a couple things going on on the wage front. Um, first and foremost, New Jersey, which is the state we've been watching all year. You know, this negotiation has been going on. Remember, they did paid leave and, you know, jumped around to a couple different issues. Uh, doesn't look like they're going to ultimately get um, minimum wage done before the end of the year, but they will continue the conversation. It'll likely move next cycle. I think the important note is you've got a bunch of legislators kind of getting frustrated and just going ahead and introducing bills. So you've got minimum wage hikes to $15 by 2023 with no exceptions. Um, other legislation um, eliminating the state's tip credit. You know, folks are just kind of putting their ideas out there as the negotiation keeps going between the administration and legislative leaders. Governor prefers no exemptions. Some of the legislative leaders are saying, hey, we should probably do something for farmers and maybe youth. Uh, wages. We'll see how it plays out, but an important state to watch with a big market for most of our folks. In um, Miami Beach, Florida, we've been watching this, you know, a bit of a smaller scale thing, but um, they passed a, a, a minimum wage ordinance back in 2016. Uh, most folks have brought, some folks have brought litigation saying that violates the state's preemption law. It's going up to the Supreme Court. You've got the Attorney General's office and some businesses filing their briefs and getting ready for that case. Uh, so that, that'll have an impact on Florida. So we're watching that pretty closely. And then finally, uh, here in the bubble, Washington, D.C., um, we've had that ongoing uh, debate over Initiative 77, which uh, eliminated the TIP credit passed in June uh, via voter initiative. Uh, council overruled that and, and repealed it. Now you've got kind of a quirk in D.C. law where you've got a 30-day window for congressional review. It's 30 congressional days, so that's actually a longer period of time. Within that time, um, advocates can uh, collect 25,000 valid signatures to do a referendum on the repeal. So we're getting a little complicated here, um, but at the end of the day, 
if they do that and they announce their intent to do so, if they do that, we could see this issue resurface um, and, and have that repeal vote thrown out uh, and have that law get back on the book. So nothing to do now for operators except uh, keep an eye on it and we'll do so. Well, one, one thing to add to that, it, it, it seems like a, a long shot and kind of a waste of time. But if Democrats take the House, I wonder what that does to the Congressional Review Act piece. Because there was always that backstop. If Republicans keep the House, there's no reason to do that because it'll never be on the books again anyway. But just something to watch with that. Yeah, Fred, I mean, if it, and it goes to the ballot. That doesn't seem like a high threshold. It, it could go to the ballot. I guess the city could repeal it again. But anyway, things we thought were settled in D.C., maybe not so much. So, Franklin, a couple things in the labor space, one federally and one in Chicago, the Windy City. You and I were in the Windy City earlier this week. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of the breezy city. It wasn't windy. It was breezy. It was actually delightful. It was a very nice day. Um, you know, Chicago, we've had a conversation around an office of labor standards being stood up in Chicago forever. I'm kind of surprised that this is finally getting over the finish line. Um, I feel like at least a year ago this, this conversation started, but it, it's a done deal now. Um, the council has approved the legislation creating it, and so they're going to go and enforce the paid leave and minimum wage laws that are in effect in Chicago. We have seen this in Seattle. We have seen it in L.A. This is something to look out for. This is You now have a mini Department of Labor if you're a Chicago-based operator that you have to deal with in addition to the state and the federal Department of Labor. And, and, and we talked years ago. We were alerting people that one of the – one of the strategies for the labor community was to set up local, essentially local NLR, NLRBs in as many places as possible to bypass what was happening federally. So this is part of that strategy. So I, I am surprised as well it's taken this long. What was the other item? National Labor Relations Board and the uh, uh, yeah. joint employer. Yeah, so they've uh, the NLRB has announced that they're extending the comment period for their joint employer rulemaking another 30 days. So that will close December 13th. We talked about it last podcast. We talked about it before. We want to get these these things closed up and, and done with. The, the longer this stuff stretches on, the more the easier it is to overturn if a new administration comes in. And Joe Renzel, your favorite subject in your favorite town, Philly, scheduling, what's going on there? Can't go by without mentioning the uh, national champion Villanova Wildcats. That's just my theme. They're located there in Philadelphia. Um, but on a sadder note for some operators, we finally have legislative movement on uh, the work week, the fair work week scheduling bill. We refer to it as restrictive scheduling. Uh, city council committee with a six to two vote passed the language. It'll move to full committee. They're expected to vote on November 29th. Um, there was a couple tweaks. Uh, I wouldn't say the business community is super happy with the end result uh, so far. They're going to continue to push for amendments. We, we saw language uh, reduced from a 14-day advanced uh, scheduling period to a 10-day uh, for advance notice for, for employees. Uh, you know, obviously, as with all these bills, the challenge is with changes within that window, you got to pay a penalty pay. Uh, to those employees and those by hour. So it becomes very challenging to implement. We've seen it play out in Seattle and San Francisco very negatively for operators. Looks like it's heading for Philadelphia. Um, we'll continue to watch it. As I said, council votes on the 29th. Mayor's not super in favor of this, but if a bill gets on his desk, he's probably going to sign it. Um, we'll see how it goes moving forward. Quick scorecard this week. Not a lot going on legislatively with the elections looming everywhere. A lot going on otherwise. Yeah. So um, good stuff. And we'll see what's what's the report next week.
Okay, it's time for our Paul Revere segment where we look down the road a bit and see what's coming around the corner. And as always, Carson Chandler joins us. Carson, what did you see this week? We are talking about those darn millennials today. Um, as, as we continue to focus on today's, uh, Tuesday's midterm elections, rather, um, we're talking about an Axios piece titled, A Horde of Millennials Are Running for Office. And the restaurant industry, as much as anybody, is aware of how millennials are kind of disrupting the status quo on so many different fronts. But this piece specifically looks at how state legislatures could be reshaped by that horde of more than 700 millennials that are on the ballot this Tuesday and how that number is going to undoubtedly grow in 2020. And so kind of two big takeaways from the piece. And the, the first is that millennial candidates are liberal, but not in the liberal sense that kind of we know today. They're not as wedded to partisan ideology. And then the second takeaway uh, builds on that. It's that they're really open to ideas and kind of using government as laboratories for ideas. The obvious question for the restaurant industry and, and kind of entry-level employers is, you know, what does this mean? Uh, the state legislatures have been reliable backstops for a lot of that experimental policy that's developed in in cities, you know, with preemption. But what does this mean if if more state governments shift to that kind of laboratory model? What does it mean for for millennials, you know, getting into into government? I think they're pros and cons. I mean, this is a fascinating subject. And we spend, I don't know how many hundreds of hours in the last couple of years talking about millennials and and so forth. But on the on the on the to the to the good, they are open minded. They don't let the past dictate how they look at issues. They have a fresh lens. They, 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 they think the sky is the limit and the possibilities are endless and there's that optimism and that's great. The flip side of that is they have no sense of the past, why things are the way they are. And you know, my personal bias, and I'm probably gonna get a lot of hate mail on this, is you know, millennials are that, that first graduating class of participation trophies. You know, where your, your kid gets the trophy <laughs> just for showing up. You know, you get the, the benefits just for... Right, hooray for everything. Just you show up for work and you should do a, a bonus because you exist and emit CO2. And now the, all these people are in the, le- you know, in, in, the, in the workforce, they're going to the legislature and they think just because they were elected to come to office, these good things are going to happen. And I don't know if, if their mindset is one of give and take and compromise. They think they're right. They ideologically have these ideas that are, you know, probably more progressive than not. And I wonder if the old-fashioned style of, of making the sausage is appeals to the millennial mindset. You, you think that in, a, in, in situations that are really hyper-partisan, that they could, they could even be more partisan? Is that? I, yeah, I, I, I do. I do. I think they think, I think my, my sense is, and I know I sound like a crotchety old man. I sound like the <laughs> guy in the, in the balcony of the Muppets, you know. Um, but I, I just, I wonder of that kind of what it takes to make the sausage is the way millennials look at the world. What, what are the guys' names in the Muppets? I can't. If, if we have any listeners, we'll give them a free T-shirt if they could uh, write we in can and Google it real fast. Yeah, but but anyway, so I, but I think it's fascinating, and you know, I, I think there's the good outweighs the bad by far because we need fresh. Yeah, and I think that it, one of so many different things that we're going to be looking at coming, you know, out of this 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 Tuesday's election. You know, one of so many different things. You know, what's the future look like? Yeah, and again, I, I go back to you know, that, 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 that kind of free lunch mentality. Oh, there's no negative implications for this tax raise, you know, or there's no negative implication for this wage raise. They, I, I don't think they're, they have functioned in a world where they've looked at things holistically, give and take, pros and cons. They have an idea of what it should look like, and they move forward on it. And so I think there's going to be some, some growing pains. And we're seeing that at the local level. Look at all yeah. these, like D.C. we've been picking on for forever. Now, they're not millennials, but 
I always say that the, the collision between governing and campaigning is a very violent collision. I think with these millennials, it'll be even more violent. Wow. Good stuff. So Franklin, going back to that study, there were, there are a lot of recommendations being made as to next steps. What should you, what should you do to cope? I have a couple couple favorites here. Probably top of the list is the Food Mood Journal, um, which essentially is a daily list of what you're eating along with how you're feeling at the same time. Drawing a little <laughs> correlation there. Um, wow. Yeah. So that's some touchy feely stuff. That, there. Put that in everybody's back pocket if you have a rough election day. You've got that. Also. Um, don't engage in negative self-talk. That's that's another recommendation. Don't, don't denigrate yourself, right? Don't denigrate yourself. Renzel, how often do you denigrate yourself? Well, I got you in my life, so I, I don't really need to do that to myself too much. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's no room for it. <laughs> well played. We keep you in line, Renzel. Okay, another week, another pod. That'll do it for the show, and we'll talk to you next week. Don't forget to vote. Vote.